Welcome back to The Lubber's Hole, the podcast where we're following the novels of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Ian. And Mike. And we're now partway through Post-Captain. We're getting deep into the heart of the story of Post-Captain. Mike, what's in store for us this week? So, Ian, we're boarding the Polycrest, one of the strangest ships in the canon. We've got this hostility building between Jack and Stephen over Diana and Sophie, who continue in the story, although a bit in the background. And we have a little bit of advice from one of Jack's good old friends passing on through Stephen that really throws a hand grenade into the relationship between Jack and Stephen as we move forward in post-captain. So Jack and Stephen have arrived aboard his new commander, Polycrest, and it's probably fair to say the Polycrest isn't everybody's idea of a traditional um, sailing man of war. Yeah, that's for sure. When Jack was telling the First Lord that he'd take any ship, that's kind of what he ended up with was just any ship. This thing that has, you know, it, it's so strangely designed. Um, I looked up the word Polycrest and it says adapted to several different uses. And apparently this ship was designed after a couple of real ships in in actual naval history there. There were uh, real ships, the Dart and her sister, the Arrow, uh, which had these sliding, you know, leaking, unfortunately, centerboard cases, actually designed by a Captain John Shank. I hope hope no relation, but they had a number of small (laughs) Royal Naval- These Shanks, they get everywhere, don't they, Mike? Yeah, that's right. You know, you always, you know, between Shanks mayor and Shanks that are used in prison, it's like, you know, this surname just does nobody any good, particularly golfers out there. (laughs) And then there was also a ship designed to carry a new design to howitzer into coastal waters, a ship called the Project. Um, HMS Project, right. Yeah. So those were some real life things, but it comes out to be a real mismatch. And Jack, although delighted to be going aboard, I was really taken by his feelings about this ship. You know, he's reflecting to himself and saying, you know, it's not impossible that he might be able to make a passable man of war out of the Polytrust. He knew her tolerably well now. He and the master, and he had a great esteem for Mr. Goodrich had worked out a sale plan that made the most of what qualities she possessed. But when he could, he would alter her trim to bring her by the head and rake her mask. She might do better, but he could not love her. She was a mean-spirited vessel, right? Radically vicious, cross-grained, laborsome, cruel in her unreliability, and he could not love her. It's funny. Two things strike me about that, as I as I hear you say it. First of all, that sounds like how somebody would describe a cantankerous horse. To go back to the horse theme yeah. from a, an episode, <laughs> yeah, cantankerous and cross grained. Right, right. And I, I think you know, I think later in the uh, in the canon, we'll hear Jack referring to the sailing of certain ships and the handling of certain ships, like you right. would certain kinds of horses. That's what's well spotted. <laughs> and and the other thing is that this is a real wrench. Jack, Jack's a real romantic about his ships, I think, and. For him not to love his first command, you know, he always takes pride in being able to say something positive about yes. the ships he commands, and this must be a real wrench for him to realize this is this is eleven. <laughs> yeah, O'Brien goes on to tell us that this has never happened to him before. The feeling was so strange, the disloyalty so uncomfortable. Wow! <gasps> Gosh, 
And you can kind of imagine that this might be the command that other captains might have turned down before the first lord had offered it to Aubrey, right? This is something that, you know, other captains more in favour than Jack Aubrey would have found a way to get something a little bit more desirable to command. For sure. And and I think that, uh, you know, we, we kind of pick up a little bit of that. I can't remember, Ian, was it just before this scene that there was that very emotional officer leaving the first lord's office i can't remember if that was this one or oh yes the guy leaves leaves in tears just before jack goes in to see melville yeah right yeah so i I can only (laughs) imagine what that might have been but perhaps it was a look at the polycrest yeah so jack's humbled himself a lot to to take this thing on yeah and 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 i think melville says you know you're you're saying you'll take anything anything my lord (laughs) well here it is so Jack and Stephen are aboard the ship and they two together, more or less as they were back in the days of the Sophie, they've got um, Thomas Pullings as a as a lieutenant and they've also got this rather, what's the right word, rather inadequate, rather hard horse old first lieutenant and I can't remember his name, is it Parker? Parker. Yeah, Lieutenant Parker. And still not really a happy ship, not really a, a united company of officers aboard we might come back in a second to the uneasy relationship that still abides between Stephen and jack but i really liked reading about pullings and Stephen's just had this really kind of gloomy introspective period he's written in his diary about how he doesn't know how much longer he can go on in his friendship with jack and in bursts thomas pullings and i love this for two things first of all o'brien writes about joy radiating from the person of thomas pullings He's a humble working class guy. He's come, as they say, after through the horse hole. And he's overwhelmed with pleasure, even though, you know, he's many, many, many steps below where Jack is as a as a as a candidate post captain. He's made it professionally into the officer class as a lieutenant, and he just bursts out with joy. I think it's fantastic. He also goes on in his really joyful, gabbling, bubbling over speech to tell the story of Jack Aubrey reading himself in. And I like this because it's another moment where Patrick O'Brien describes an episode that we all know about now, which is the reading in of a new commander aboard a vessel. But rather than Patrick O'Brien describing Jack walking on board ship, he has Thomas Pullings, in his own perspective, tell the story of Jack arriving. I'll I'll, I'll try the <laughs> I'll, I'll try the Thomas Pullings speech. I'm pretty sure that Pullings is from Norfolk or somewhere in East Anglia. I can't remember. I'm not going to attempt the accent that Patrick O'Brien writes for Thomas Pullings, but Pullings said, Captain Aubrey, Captain Aubrey turns up at the crack of dawn, posted all the way, reads himself in to me and Parker and the Marines and half a dozen lubies, which was all we had then, and up goes his pennant. And before his last words are rightly out, fail not as you will answer to the contrary at your peril, he says, Mr. Pullings, that topsail sheet block needs a dog bitch thimble, if you please, in his own voice exactly. So, we hear and we can imagine like Jack Aubrey arriving aboard ship in a tearing hurry and in a foul temper, but none of that really takes away from Thomas Pullings being so overjoyed with his promotion. You know, I love Thomas Pullings and I love the way Patrick O'Brien pulls these different characters through, not just our main characters, but, you know, characters at all level of the book. I mean, this is not the only thing we hear of Pullings here. Pullings has got uh, a little bit more excitement in his life, as I recall. That's right. He's... uh, He's got a girlfriend and he's got parents. And I think just the day after that conversation with Stephen Maturin, they all show up 
ashore. Um, and they had this massive spread of a dinner. And again, Pullings is just overcome with joy and pleasure at the occasion. And there's this great feast. And they, you know, they, they're so worried about Jack being ashore, being arrested for debt. But they're certain that with this thing, nobody else knows about it. It's a little bit out of the way. But nonetheless, things don't always go the way it's planned. No. And the uh, bailiffs are outside. Now, who is it comes puts their head around the door? Is it Killick or somebody? Yeah. One of the ship's company basically puts the head around the door of the room where they're eating and says, the bailiffs are here. And then the fight's on. Exactly. With that warning, everybody's scrambling. Jack goes to jump out the window there are assembled bailiff's men waiting to catch him and tap him. Jack hails Bondin and his crew at the boat waiting to uh, pick him back up. And uh, a melee ensues, fighting inside the room, fighting under the window. And it's just an amazing scene. And what you've got to say, it's got to be part of the pattern of life for sailors pretty much time immemorial. Getting in a bar brawl is a you know a happy career milestone for sailors. So these sailors are obviously pretty well-practiced. And handling themselves in a scrap, even with people as kind of tough and well-prepared as the bailiffs. And in the end, the bailiffs don't come out well, do they? No, I just love as a finishing touch, you know, long as we've got these guys on shore, you know, one of the bailiffs gets pressed into service and dragged back onto the ship to now, uh, instead of arresting Jack Aubrey, he's serving under Jack Aubrey on the polycrest. A satisfying moment. <laughs> a very satisfying moment. Post captain is interesting because we started out with these the ladies, you know, down the road from Melbury Lodge. And here we are off to sea again. And maybe the thought that, well, that's that's enough with the ladies. We're back nautical, we're back to adventure and cannons pounding. But O'Brien's got something else up his sleeve. Right. I think he made a crafty move plot-wise in having Polycrest Station be basically in the Downs. The Downs is an anchorage sort of off the the southeast corner of Kent. And being in the Downs and looking after convoys coming in and out of the Downs anchorage means that Jack and Stephen both have access to shore. They're a boat ride from Deal and a boat ride and a short horse ride from Dover. And it's no coincidence, I think, that Dover is where Diana Villiers is hanging out for a little while. And they both have their different escapades ashore And it does mean that we get to carry on in the story, hearing and listening into the dialogue between them and the women. Interestingly, Stephen and Sophie. Stephen and Sophie have this really sort of trusting, confidential relationship. And he unburdens himself a little bit to her about how he feels about Jack. And she, in return, kind of expresses her her frustration at the situation that she's in and being expected to follow along with the wishes of her mother and being expected to entertain calls from from suitors. Yeah, I love the way they try to counsel each other, but with that reserve of the period of, you know, I, yeah. I and sometimes, you know, you just want to reach in. It's like shouting at the movie theater screen and saying, Stephen, just tell her, Sophie, just yeah. tell him, you know, and, but they do, they have this incredible relationship, this incredible esteem. As, as Stephen says, you know, you know, Sophie, of course, you can tell a medical man anything. And, yeah, it really is. It's a delight to to listen to, to watch, to hear. Absolutely. And it's, I think it's a fair criticism of the book, actually, that in this period of the novel, that lots of the unappealing side of the characters comes out. You know, J- 
Jack's a bit selfish and a bit of a clumsy boy, and right. Stephen is as a bit of an introspected, you know, kind of wrangles with his conscience rather than taking prompt action. Diana Villiers is still a manipulative and and hurtful and quite cross grained individual, to use the phrase familiar on. For me, Sophie comes out as a bit of a hero. I, I like the way that you know she's got some pluck and some character. She talks about responding to this Mister Bowles who's called on her as a as a suitor, obviously with her mother's blessing. And she says, oh, he's, he's not rude or unkind in the least. Um, he's a worthy and respectable young man, but he has moist hands. He sits and gasps. He thinks I ought to gasp. I, but if, if he gasps at me just once more, I'll run my scissors into him. <laughs> Which is great. That's, <laughs> out of the four of them, that's one of them's got an, an uncomplicated response to the situation that they're in. Right. And sometimes I wonder to run her scissors at, not in, but at her mother. <laughs> that that seems oh, to be the one place where she yeah. slows down. Absolutely. Mrs. Williams is the one character that she, she's, she's a grotesque and a villain the whole way through this. There's got no redeeming qualities at all. <laughs> Too true. And whereas we get direct contact with Sophie and we hear these very candid speeches between her and Stephen, Diana's present in the story as well but we come back to this idea of scent Stephen Maturin bought her a bottle of expensive French scent and she loves scent and she's a bit 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 vain and a bit of a lush and she wears this scent and he's reminded of her in a bunch of unhelpful ways through the later parts of the story whenever he kind of catches a waft of this scent again yeah it really does ratchet up the tension as uh, you know Stephen has just been off into the surf and and lost his boots and has to be kind of saved by the other sailors a little bit, gets back on board the ship. And then, you know, here's this big rigmarole right after he's gone down and it's the captain coming on board the ship. And he says, you know, I didn't realize the captain had left the ship. He's a little bit concerned anytime Jack goes anywhere near land that he's going to get arrested and he should know better than this. And Jack's just in a roaring good spirits um, talking animatedly to Stephen, and Stephen catches that scent, and the whole thing goes south. The whole atmosphere changes. Yeah. <sighs> so, interestingly, you mentioned that the sand dunes, and we're going to talk some more about the sand dunes. The, the, the Goodwin Sands are this kind of really mysterious, very low-lying, slightly hostile patch of tidal water in you know it's the 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 goodwin sands are basically the 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 sandbank that shelters the downs and makes it an anchorage Mm. and the whole place is low-lying and sandy and a little bit creepy and on a foggy day or a day at low tide when there's just sea and sand washing together as far as the eye can see it's a really good setting for eerie unsettling and thought-provoking things to happen so again smart choice i think by patrick o'brien is that the to have the downs and the goodwin sounds as part of the setting very nice and also the the downs is the site of many a shipwreck being unmarked low-lying on the sandbank there are loads and loads of shipwrecks on the goodwin sands and you might say that the characters of Stephen and jack are on the verge of shipwreck i'm not sure if that i'm not sure if that metaphor is going to stand up well it, it is interesting that we're getting you know, we have these moments of looks like we're a little bit back to normal and then we're not. And then the tension ratchets up a little bit and then 
you know, a little ease, a little something about another character, and then oop, something else happens, and it just ratchets up and up and up. And we're not, you know, we're not at sea. We don't have, a, you know, a privateer or the cacafuego coming down upon us, but it's palpable here. And then there's going to be this big mission that Stephen undertakes to Spain. His intelligence work is a big part of his character, but O'Brien beautifully packages up this intelligence mission, maybe knowing that there's not a lot of space in what is already a long novel, maybe also knowing that there's there's plenty enough action and story threads going on as it is without us delving deeply into it. But it also gives him a chance to just talk about it briefly in this very beautiful, poetic, abstracted way that I really love in O'Brien's writing. So the actual mission to Spain is described almost at a distance like this. He says, tides, tides, the cove of Cork, the embarkation waiting on the moon, a tall, swift-pacing mule in the bare, torrid mountains quivering in the sun, palmetto scrub, Signor Don Esteban Maturini Domanova kisses the feet of the very reverend Lord Abbot of Montserrat and begs the honour of an audience. The endless white road winding, the inhuman landscape of Aragon, cruel sun and weariness, dust, weariness to the heart, and doubt. And that's his, like, what, 40-word poetic description of Stephen's journey to Spain and back via Ireland. And it's, it's, it's beautiful, and it tells you all that you need to know about what the journey meant to Stephen. And uh, I just really love it. I, I think it's amazing. And to your to your point, it's not only so much fun to read, to listen to, it's O'Brien making a great edit to say what is important out of this, I am going to, as he so often does, bring to you later. But let me give you the essence right here. Beautifully yeah. done. Yeah. Bravo, Patrick O'Brien. He's clearly got the chops for this, hasn't he? He should, he should continue this, this novel writing. I, I think we should. I think we should keep going here, Patrick O'Brien. We're going to take a short break now, but we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to the Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Jack is perhaps continuing his dalliance with Diana in the belief that his friend Stephen won't do anything about it. But the tension gets ratcheted up another notch further when Stephen gets into conversation with MacDonald, the Marine officer, and they both realize they've got an interest in, uh, in, in the weapon skills. MacDonald as a Marine and Stephen as a jeweler, um, having a history in, you know, having an education in Ireland. And Ireland is a place where the dueling culture was even stronger than it was in England at the time. And we have this moment where Stephen is on deck practicing his small sword skills and then practicing his pistol skills with MacDonald. And we see this through the eyes of Jack. And the wonderful writing here, there was something disagreeable and somehow reptilian about the cold, contained way Stephen took up his stance, raised his pistol, 
looked along the barrel with pale eyes and shot the head off the King of Hearts. Jack's certainties wavered. And by the way, I love the fact that the card was the King of Hearts, but we're gradually peeling back the layers of Stephen being the kind of harmless lubber scientist to realise, you know, he's been in the world a little bit and he's got he's got the means to defend himself and to to answer a challenge. And that ratchets the tension up still more, I think, because Stephen's not any longer somebody whose goodwill you can take for granted. No, he's got these mad skills and seems, appears, you know, to almost lose all emotion here. And I, I think I remember in an earlier scene, you know, somebody had asked Stephen about dueling and, you know, and about the custom in Ireland. And Stephen was saying, oh, yeah, you know, university, you know, I would go out often. And somebody said, well, what do you mean go out often, you know, be in a duel often? He'd say, oh, you know, 20 or so times a year. And that, boy, it's kind of, it it makes your blood run a little cold nowadays. I I did a little bit of looking up about dueling. And this is another one of those things that O'Brien's picked on that are very specific to the period. Dueling was was quite common in late 18th, early 19th century, middle class and upper class society. It had pretty much either fallen out of custom or been outlawed in... Ireland and Britain and the US by the middle of the 19th century. And for, I don't know exactly what reason, dueling culture in particular, particularly undergraduate dueling culture was a big deal in Ireland. And there's a document called the Code Duello, which is basically a a set of laws, if you like, or bylaws for dueling, was published by a bunch of aristocrats in Ireland and was taken up as the gentleman's honor code for dueling. Um, We should put a link to it in the Twitter feed, maybe. Oh, nice. Um, written by some Irish aristocrats, and that's the, those are the rules that Americans and, and, uh, and Englishmen followed in, in dueling custom for the next 20 or 30 years. Wow. And it was something that people were very aware of and must have been at the front of Jack's mind as well that you know, this is somebody who can turn to violence if I challenge or if I, if I present a challenge to him, and that violence might well not turn out so great for me. No, for sure. And that's important because... In the real social context of 19th century Britain, and especially Irish life in the 19th century, there's a good reason why a man of Stephen's kind of age and provenance would have been pretty handy with a sword and pretty handy with pistols. So in this document called the Code Duello, written by Irish aristocrats, there's a series of rules about the exchange that must happen after certain grades of offence. And what Jack is challenging Stephen with is a lie, an outright lie about what he was doing and where he'd been. And rule four says, when the lie direct is the first offence, the aggressor must either beg pardon in express terms, exchange two shots previous to apology, or three shots followed up by an explanation, or fire on till a severe hit be received by one party or the other. So this idea of giving someone the lie, calling them out on their lie, takes you straight to you need to exchange shots here and not just a quick pass, you know, either three shots or somebody's going to get hurt. Wow. I I bet O'Brien must have read this because there's an encounter with a soldier in Australia in full, I guess, five, ten novels time where Stephen basically draws down on this guy. And the the behavior and the language that Stephen uses at that point, I can now see described in this dueling code. Oh, interesting. Uh, it says that all imputations of cheating at play should be considered equivalent to a blow, and that might be important in the life to come for Stephen and Jack. Mm-hmm. Rule 10 says, 
any insult to a lady under a gentleman's care or protection shall be considered as by one degree a greater offence than if given to the gentleman personally. Wow. And Rule 11 says, offences originating or accruing from the support of ladies' reputations should be considered as less justifiable and, and than any others of the same class. But it's interesting because it makes you understand, for me anyways, a little more clearly what what Aubrey is saying. Now, wait a minute. Now, as you know, is she under your protection? Let me clarify here in the midst of their exchange there. Absolutely. And you can hear it a little bit in the context to the exchange between Stephen and the young Marine officer, who is a bit Whoa. of a sort of lounge layabout flashman, you know, yes. upper class drooling idiot type who says, oh, I quite fancy a bit of a shot at her. And yes. Stephen cuts him off. Clearly, Stephen is willing to to have a fairly confrontational conversation with this Marine officer about Diana Villiers' reputation. And very, very quickly, the Marine officer withdraws, perhaps knowing already by then that Stephen's not to be trifled with. He, he kind of flips it off a little bit insincerely. And then Stephen, <laughs> I think to your point about these dueling codes, walks him right into a very narrow alley of, yeah. you know, of gaming and high stakes gaming. And Stephen is either going to punish him which he does severely, or yeah, with joy as well. I think. Oh my at least gosh! With, with relish. <laughs> yeah, you see this back again. This reptilian, cold. Uh, you know, Stephen is just completely maniacal and mechanical in taking this guy apart to the point where Jack has to make him promise later, you know, not to ever do it again. That 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 could be, you know, really uh, uh, upset the ship even further. I get a sense of an egalitarian streak. In Patrick O'Brien, because he's he finds it very easy to praise and enjoy and promote characters who are you know working class or humble origins making it up through the system. There are you know admirals like that who are always portrayed in a positive light. Thomas Pullings came aft through the horse hole, and he's a very positive character. Flip side of that is Patrick O'Brien finds it very easy to write upper class characters who are twits and snobs and evil and malicious. And he does it very well. <laughs> too, too true. It, it, it actually is. But particularly the first side of that equation, I, I, one of the things I love so much about him, I love so much just a yeah. kindness and a, and a justice and a love and an admiration and a goodness that comes through there that I, it really endears me to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Well said. There was an earlier quote in the book. You talked about Stephen's relationship with Sophie and how they shared so much. And Stephen had said, you know, my dear, uh, where women are concerned, a man is very helpless against direct attack. I do not mean in the nature of a challenge, which, of course, he's bound in honor to take up, but in the nature of a plain statement of affection. <laughs> so it's it's fascinating, yeah. this idea of doing that. Well, by honor, if it's a dual situation, you've got to go after it. However, if it's a woman you know, confessing affection... Helpless. There's nothing I can do about that. What do I, you know, I'm overwhelmed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What a relatively broken society that um, yeah. two men dis disagreeing over a game of cards, they know exactly what to do. They point a pistol at each other. Um, right. Two men who can't figure out what they really feel about the women in their lives. There's no oh. code that helps them. <laughs> That's a bit sad. Too true, brother. <laughs> yeah. And we don't have dueling anymore. We just have Twitter, right? Right. <laughs> you know, so often we mentioned during this story that, 
we said, oh, if only somebody would say something, if only they would just state their true feelings, if, if, you know, if they would tell each other what they know about each other and what people think of each other. And so we finally get to a scene in which Dundas is, is talking to Stephen Matron. Stephen Matron is, is off the ship and in town and uh, Dundas meets him and says, you know, I need you to talk to Jack. Jack is, mm. is really messing himself up with the Admiralty and he's going to get himself into some trouble and set his career back. And you're his particular friend. Please tell him for me. And unfortunately, as much as we want people to tell each other, this one doesn't bode well. In a way, this lights the fuse on an explosion that's now almost inevitable. That that conversation motivates Stephen to go back to the ship and start to face Jack down and say, look, Jack, not only I, but your particular friend, Dundas, are, are picking up on this. And at this point, you can just feel the dread and the foreboding as all of this tension that Stephen and Jack have so far skirted around and almost avoided and kind of mitigated, this tension's about to really explode. And there's going to be this big confrontation between Stephen and Jack. Yeah, this this really pinned me right to the wall when I was reading about yeah. this, particularly the first time through thinking, oh my gosh, because we've been building and building and building. And all of a sudden, it's it, and, and so much has been laid out here. So much has been laid out about Stephen's skills, about how Jack sometimes, uh, while in, incredibly calculating and strategic, as a commander, particularly going into war, yeah. not so much as a human being, and particularly where the where the fair sex becomes involved here in his yeah. relationships. And you know, Stephen tries as a friend to tell him some pretty practical things, but Jack hears it as you know a ruse de guerre, as a, another suitor for Diana Villers, trying to get Jack to clear the field here, and and. Unfortunately, he's not thinking. He just completely reacts. And there's this big showdown between the two of them. Stephen, who's meanwhile been on a mission, an intelligence mission to Spain, had to cover up for it a little and comes back suntanned. That's one of the things that Jack picks up on and says, if you say that you had delicate weather in Ireland, but you're as brown as a berry, then I'm sorry, my friend, you're a liar. And that's the moment that there's no way back from. Right. You know, here it is. And and we, we you know, we've heard before, we'll hear again that Stephen does not like to be called a liar, even when he's lying. <laughs> He'll tell Jack later in the book, hey, look, there are many things I have to do in the role that I have that include telling lies. But I never want any man to tell me this to my face. You know, and, and Stephen has really tried to to sort of back him down, but he can't do it. He calls him the liar. And, um, you know, Stephen says, you know, you said enough, sir, uh, too much by far. You must withdraw. And yeah. Jack, here it is, you know, it's like he's, he's giving him the ultimatum. Jack, you know, I shall not withdraw. And, and then Jack adds that thing that is just it. Now the matches to the fuse here. I will stand by that, and I'm perfectly willing to give you any satisfaction you may choose to ask for. And then O'Brien answers that question that we had in Master and Commander. It's odd enough, said Stephen in a low voice, that our acquaintance should have begun with a challenge and that it should end with one. Oh, 
hammer blow. Whoa. Absolute hammer blow. Yeah. So they've painted themselves into a corner almost with words that are absolutely unambiguous and particularly unambiguous when it comes to challenges and duels. So we're left with our two fallen heroes, really, both facing the fact that in a day or two, they're going to have to face each other. Unless the Navy spirits them away, they're going to have to face each other in this eerie, otherworldly environment of the dunes and the sands around Deal. And they both know it. Yeah, they do. And and they both seem uh, uh, to go about uh, their... You know, to just head off on that course. I mean, Stephen goes and arranges the loan of a pair of pistols. He's very methodical in preparing. And uh, again, we're reminded of what a dead shot he is. And I, I, I remember reading this. And then later, as I came back to reread again, thinking, oh, my God, you know, thank God this is not Game of Thrones because this is Game of Thrones. We're, we're in big trouble here. <laughs> my, my favorite protagonist, one of the two of them, is not going to make it through this book. And there's this sense of not only kind of doom and jeopardy, but resignation, like you say, both of them in their different ways. We spend, O'Brien gives us some time in the headspace of both of them, especially Stephen, but also actually with Jack. Yes. And Stephen goes out, as you say, and practices his pistol skills and walks the ground. And he finds this very kind of strangely peaceful, contemplative, lonely experience, just wandering the sand dunes There are days when one sees as though one had been blind the rest of one's life. Such clarity, perfection in everything, not merely in the extraordinary. One lives in the very present moment. One lives intently. And for a guy who's an occasional recreational drug user, those are important things for him to think, I think. And he's sort of appreciating and welcoming this kind of rather somber detachment that he has. This is perhaps the final detachment. This is perhaps the only way to live free, surprisingly light and well. No diminution of interest, no commitment. This is a liberty I have hardly known. The minutes and the hours stretch out and there is leisure to see the movement of the present. Um, A wilderness of time in this arenaceous world. And arenaceous means sandy, I think. Yeah. That's just educated. Yeah, it is interesting that Stephen, you know, in the midst of this seems to be having a moment of what sounds a lot like enlightenment in a Zen sort of sense, that he's just focused on the here and the now, um, has this incredible night of lucid concentration, gets all of his coding and spy work all set up, gets his affairs in order, and is almost kind of joyous, not in the idea of doing away with Jack, but in that I'm just pinpoint focused here. And I was wondering where that writing came from, because it seemed really heartfelt. Um, Mm. O'Brien's not always very, very poetical, but I found the writing very poetical, some really moving imagery. And it got me wondering whether there's an element of Patrick O'Brien's personal experience in it. Now, obviously not not dueling, but Patrick O'Brien lived through the Second World War. He was very coy and probably very, very obviously a bit deceptive about exactly what he did. Um, in terms of service in the Second World War, but it's believed that he had some kind of role in secret intelligence for the British government in World War II. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if there's an echo in this writing of someone who's been deployed on some mortally dangerous operation and has 
this quiet, almost serene time alone before they go out on the very hazardous um, operation. And you know, there, there's there's writing around wartime and writing around kind of military situations that this reminded me of. A little bit like Catch-22. You know, sometimes this very eerie, very sort of unsettling calm when you're back at base waiting for the terrible risk to come and confront you. Right. It's not a matter of if, just when. <sighs> and Jack's having his own experience of contemplating as well, isn't he? Although he is in a different setting. It, it, very much so. You know, he is, um, you know, he's encountering prostitutes. He's in the bars and the alleyways of Dover. And then he takes himself out in the midst of all that. He's a little low, uh, had, had earlier called upon Diana, was told she was yeah. not at home. He goes back up there, sneaks up onto her window ledge, only discover to discover that she's there with Canning. And they're having quite a wonderful time together. So, you know, the reason that he's fighting this duel is now dropped out from under him, I suspect, with a lot of the joy of his Absolutely. life as well. His his what he thought of as honor in protecting his position, his whatever it is, love or affection or distraction for Diana Villiers, um, all fall away. I think it really also points out that he's been disregarding the feelings that he has for Sophie because of the distraction of the presence of Diana Villiers. And all of that is called out in this moment as having been such a waste and such a foolish dalliance. And the most, the most self-aware collected man in the world would find that a hard thing to deal with. And I think he's, he's not that right now. No, no. You know, we're at a really low dark point of the story. And and you got to ask yourself, where where's redemption going to come from here? What's going to happen next? I, I, I wrote in my notes. I wrote Canning. Aye, aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> Too true, especially well. And, and it's a great point in that you know here's Canning when he meets when Jack meets Canning at at uh, Queenie's route. He's saying, you know, now this is, I don't usually kind of, I'm certainly not impressed with bankers and commercial men. I'm impressed with him. He's more naval. I really quite like him. We have this, you know, fabulous offer that Canning made to Jack when he was at a low point. Jack loved that. Then Jack is on convoy duty. Canning has some ships in it. They get to see each other again. They have this incredible dinner together. And Jack just loves Canning and is having a grand time with him. And they're singing together and drinking profusely together. And then here it is. You know, it's not Stephen that's done me in. (laughs) It's myself that's done me in. And now, you know, I have a couple loves of my life and, and, and this great friendship that I've had when I had nothing, and now I'm losing them all. So I think this is the real low point. If you were going to be all musical about this and think about Stephen and Jack play, play music, and if you're a music fan, in, in the world of sonata form in classical music, this is the heart of the development section. This is where all the colors are, where all the <laughs> colors have gone dark. This is where the harmony is really hard to unentangle. This is where the themes are as twisted around each other as they can get. And and only one thing is needed at this point, and that's to find a way out of the mess and get back to some of the sunlight that we had at the beginning of the story. So who could it be? <laughs> Which character is going to offer the chance to cut the knot and to resolve this horrible twisted mess? It's going to be Admiral Hart, <laughs> which is really delicious irony, isn't it? 
<laughs> Who would have ever Absolutely. thunk it, right? And and certainly not Hart doing anybody any favors. No. I suspect. I, I, I suspect Hart knows, and we we read in the text that Jack knows that the order that Hart gives, which is to go to this fictitious port of Chaulieu on the other side of the channel and cut out this corvette called the Fanchula. This is a suicide mission. Um, this is an opportunity for Hart to send Jack away to do something that he might not come back from. And Jack knows it for sure. But actually, this might be the thing that lets us untangle this horribly twisted story. Yeah, what and what a great thing. You know, we've had Jack and Hart's relationship so bad from master and commander. We've had him start back off in a little bit of a new relationship with Hart here, but then to disappoint him repeatedly in terms of not winning him any prizes. You know, I, I had to wonder, is this Hart saying, you know what, I, I've got this mission that I've got to deliver upstairs. Gosh, I don't want to lose any of my good folks. I know. I think yeah. I'll send Jack. Huh. So that leaves us at the point of maybe, a, in plot terms, at least a glimmer of light. I mean, impending doom of two kinds for Stephen and Jack. Yes. But in plot terms, a glimmer of light. Maybe they're not going to have to walk the strand tomorrow morning and shoot each other. Maybe they're going to be sent off on some desperate mission. Which they're, they're the... set up to do. So exactly, exactly. You know, that's a great point. Again, that if if the ship did not have to leave now, they they while they're on ship, they cannot do each other, anything to each other. Um, that would be, you know, to answer the contrary at your peril, that while on land, and, and it's been so hard trying to get this thing set up, it's tomorrow morning. And so something, boom, has to happen right now. And perhaps Absolutely. this is it. It's not straightforward, though. These two men have to live alongside each other aboard ship for at least a day or two more on board a ship that is the carpenter's mistake that might not even be fit for the job with a first lieutenant who's hated by the crew with a crew divided among the old Sophies and all the other pressed men with weather and tides and an uncertain French foe on the other side of it. We're in for a big finish to this book, I think. Well, it, it sure sounds like it again. Absolutely. And we've got that additional underlying tension, as you point out, that unlike Earlier in the novel, Jack was so distracted with his own dalliance that uh, he seems to have let things slide uh, to his, you know, possible, I'm sure to his great chagrin were he paying attention, but certainly to the point where this could do him and others great harm. So I think we should come back to this next time. We've got different kinds of harm and peril hanging over Jack and Stephen and the Polycrest. We've got in the background of all of this, the exuberant Thomas Pulling's really hoping to distinguish himself as a lieutenant. We've got Sophie hoping with all her heart that maybe one day she can get back to the man that she's saving herself for. And Diana Villiers, well, goodness knows what Diana Villiers is thinking right now. But I think we have something to talk about in our next podcast, Mike. Well, what do you say next time into a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. When they when they want to do season three's uh you know 
<laughs> yeah, uh, I'll take we'll, yeah. we'll save that one. We'll remember to come back. 